Hello, this is the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast, and I'm your host, Jill Weber. All right, well, I am really excited today uh, in today's podcast to have a conversation with a friend of mine, Phil Anderson. Phil is a long-standing member. I was going to say an older member, Phil, but I'll say instead a long-standing member of the Order of the Mustard Seed. <laughs> and um, and uh, quite importantly, author of the book, Lord of the Ring, that, that all of our candidates have to study in their preparation to join the order. We're really, really excited because Lord of the Ring had sort of had gone out of print and, and we're like, oh no, we need, we need another, another edition made. And so Phil and his publisher, Muddy Pearl, worked really, really hard to get an updated version of Lord of the Ring ready for this next season of candidates. And for all of you out there, who were interested in the Order of the Mustard Seed. So it's just come available, and I thought, now's the time to talk to Phil. And uh, so welcome, Phil. Nice to have you here. Thanks, Jill. And, yeah, the timing's great, isn't it? Um, I've got a copy here with me. I can show it to Jill. I can't show it to everyone else, I'm afraid, because this is audio. But, I mean, it looks fantastic. They've gone with the kind of Tolkien vibe on the front, which obviously is the sort of play on words that's the title. Um, it looks brilliant. The production Muddy Pearl have done is great. And... Smells like a new book, which is lovely. <laughs> is that like the smell of a new car, Phil? Or yeah, I mean, car? slightly different, obviously, but there is that kind of smell, isn't there? Sort of new cars, new books. I don't, I don't know what else. You know, what else is new and smells nice? Discuss. <laughs> the uh, the the thing that I I found so valuable, Phil, is you're a total history geek. You are like. Uh, if if you know if we are looking for somebody within or beyond the order who's who's really dove into the the history of the inception of the first iteration of the Order of the Mustard Seed, you are our guy. And and I would love to hear from you sort of what drew you to this? Why the Order of the Mustard Seed? Why did you go on that journey of exploration yourself? Yeah, I mean, there's there's several strands to that, aren't there? There's what is it drives me to be interested in in the history specifically and the spiritual legacy that this really represents? what personally drove me and continues to sort of engage me and excite me about the order of the mustard seed. And then it's particular place in the 24 seven prayer story, which increasingly the OMS goes beyond that, but that was kind of where it, where it came from and the renewal of the order came from. And it's worth acknowledging that. I think um, if you just start with me and what drove me to explore the OMS and ultimately to become a member of the OMS, I think, I've, I've always been a practical person. You, you describe me as a, a history geek, I, I, and I, I guess I must be, given all the stuff I've done on this, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a lot of things geek. I, I sort of, I, I, I long for that period when you, you were sort of allowed to be a Renaissance man or woman and could be interested in science and the arts and history and literature, and you could be a poet and a painter and a scientist kind of all at the same time we live in an era and and, and fly airplanes too yeah exactly i mean you know da vinci wrote and painted and designed flying machines if he never got to fly one it was kind of not quite putting myself in that league but yeah lots of things fascinate me but i i am a practical person and i guess that translates into the fact that i i have always wanted to put my faith into practice and understand how my faith practically shapes my life practically shapes what I do, practically shapes who I am. I remember as a teenager asking my dad, after I'd made some kind of decision in a church that I wanted to follow Jesus, sort of put my hand up, 
And I think what, you know, what was going on in my head at that point was, okay, what happens next? And I asked him, so look, dad, I've, I've become a Christian. Kind of what happens now? Well, what do I do? What does that mean in practice? And he, he helpfully gave me some sort of, you know, discipleship resources about reading the Bible and starting to live it out and that kind of thing. But I've, I've always asked that question. And then when I, when I started to read and get to understand the original order of the mustard seed in the 1700s, this, this kind of vow or commitment that they made to be true to Christ, to be kind to people, to take the gospel to the nations, and how, on the one hand, that, that's just being a Christian. That is just love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself and um, go make disciples of all nations. That, that's all that vow is. But the way they translated that into practical expression in the world and the circumstances that they found themselves in, there was something about that was incredibly appealing to me. And I, I kind of thought, I, I need this sense of structure, this sense of a compass to guide my walk of discipleship in my life. And what they did, translating those basic principles of what it means to be a Christian and really grounding them in, in practical expression of how you live out day to day, I think that that was something that was really appealing to me when I first came to this. And it's something that I found to be incredibly valuable and really foundational to the last, I suppose, 15 years of my walk of discipleship as a Christian. Talk to me a little bit more about how they did ground it practically. That first order of the mustard seed way back in 1716 and beyond. What did it look like for them? Well, I, I, I guess people might like to think in some ways that they had this rule of life that was created right at the beginning and that just became some eternal foundational document or principle. But it, it wasn't quite like that. And I, I really I really appreciate the fact that it wasn't quite like that. So, you know, the original order of the mustard seed was basically start, started by a group in high school. You know, they were 16 to 18 years old, that kind of age. They, they'd been through a mixture of, you know, taking a bit of stick for their faith and a bit of bullying in a school environment, but also being part of a, a small-scale kind of high school revival of prayer and faith. And they really wanted to consolidate that as they moved on into their lives. So when they made this, this first commitment, and if you actually sort of read and translate some of what they promised, a lot of it was relevant to the, you know, the aspirations and temptations of young men starting out in life. So there was stuff in there about personal purity, there was stuff in there about ambition, there was stuff in there about, you know, zeal and what they hoped to accomplish for God and what they hoped God would accomplish in them. That was kind of how it was written. If you then fast forward sort of, um, it's about 20 odd years to 1740, which is the, the famous kind of published edition of the, 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 the rules of the order of the mustard seed, which actually I, I explore and present quite a lot of in the book, um, you know, by then, you're talking about um, sort of people who are at the top of their careers. They're in positions of leadership in a fast-growing global Christian movement. Some of them also have influential positions in their professions or in what they do. Um, the, the nature of what it means to be true to Christ, to be kind to people, to take the gospel to the nations feels very different at that stage of life to what it did when you were 16, 18 years old. And whilst the, the same basic principles shine through, that, that sense of, you know, the, the kind of stuff they're grappling with in the 1740 edition of the rules is, um, 
you know, what do you do about people who are living zealously for Christ, but in reality are strongly opposing or persecuting what you're trying to do? What do you do about different branches of Christianity, which have become very politicized and are sort of at each other's throats, and yet we want to help them work together? Um, You know, what do you do about things which once had the power of God in them, but quite clearly have sort of fallen from that that grace in a lot of ways and are now a shadow of their former selves? Do you kind of condemn them for the path of decline they've gone on or do you try and help them to recover? Yeah, all those kind of questions that they're looking at and grappling with. And I, I love the fact that those same basic principles could be translated into practical expression at different stages of life. For, you know, you had quite literally... You had a king and a bookshop owner who were both members of the Order of the Mustard Seed. We know that for sure. We've got that evidence in those documents. And, you know, these are people who in many would be regarded at not quite opposite ends of the social scale, but pretty close when it came when it comes down to it. And yet the rules of the OMS and the OMS meant that they could both try and work out for themselves. What does it mean to live out those basic kingdom principles in the life and the place that God has placed me? And genuinely see the kingdom of God at work. And, and you know, I would say that um, James Hutton, who was the bookseller, was probably as influential in the start of the, the, the Great Awakening, the Evangelical Revival in Britain in the late 1700s, as King Christian VI was in the, the sort of the restoration of faith in Denmark in the 1700s. And, you know, the way in which they could be an influence was very different. You know, Hutton was kind of a discipler and a radical disruptor and a radical thinker. Christian VI was all about, you know, how do we build this into the structures of society over which I have a great deal of influence in my position? And yet they were both grappling with what does it mean to do mission? What does it mean for me to to live with true to Christ with integrity in the position I'm in? And the fact you've got these principles that are so close to the principles of the kingdom of God and yet can be translated into something that genuinely works for people in of very different ages with very different personalities in very different stages of life, very different life circumstances they've got themselves into. And yet we're willing to call themselves brothers and sisters and, you know, serve together as one order and very deliberately say the world may see us very differently, but we are we see ourselves completely on a level. We are servants of Christ and there's only two steps in this hierarchy. There's Jesus and there's us. It's just fantastic they'd managed to get to that place and especially that they'd managed to get to it in a society which was, you know, structured and hierarchical and class ridden in a way that, you know, we still recognise the problems of that today, but what we see is genuinely nothing compared to what it was back then. Yeah, it's amazing. Hey, and I think we see that now in the current iteration of the order of the mustard seed. We've got we've got politicians, we've got stay-at-home moms, we've got vicars, we, we've got people in every strata, you know, in terms of, of different calls, places that I, I call it the places of God's planting, where God has planted them and just trying to work it out. And I think the other thing I want to pull out what you said too is you know when people are writing their personalized customary, they do that over the course of their preparation to join the order of the mustard seed. What is this? How does this rule of life apply to me here now? That it really is a living document, isn't it, Phil? Like that, like that's going to change. I don't know about you, but I rewrote my personalized customary when COVID hit because <laughs> yes. I thought, wow, you know what? My rule of life in the in the age of global pandemic and lockdown is going to be a little bit different than it was before. So I love in the history we see that there was this 
it is this living document as as life changes then our our way of life in terms of how we wrap our lives around the gospel our gospel intention changes as well you know i'm i'm just amazed at at your grasp of the history of all of, obviously you had to do a lot of research for your book but but your love for history just shines through why does the history matter why does the history of the original oms matter to us today yeah and it, it's a fair question because you could say well, okay, it might have inspired us to kick this thing off in the first place, but now we just get on with it. We've got to live this in our own time. I think it, the, the history genuinely does matter, and it matters for several reasons. I think there's there's a really practical reason that there are practical things we can learn from what they did in their time. There's there's a whole reason around inspiration, you know, that kind of something has to excite you emotionally. There has to be a reason to get started on this journey. And for me, it was looking at what they'd done in their era, sensing how the, the fingerprints of God were just all over that. And this longing to say, you know, I, I love that verse in Habakkuk. It says, Lord, we have heard of your fame. We, we stand in awe of your wonderful deeds, O God. Renew them in our day. In your wrath, remember mercy. In our time, make them known. And, you know, I've always loved that verse. And it really came to life to me when I looked at, at the history of the IMS and said, you know, Lord, the, your fame is all over this. Renew it in our day. And then I think... If you're going to be spiritually connected to something, there is a spiritual principle here that goes even deeper than, you know, the intellectual, what we can what we can learn from this, or the emotional, how can we be inspired by this, into the spiritual of, if you are connecting, to, connecting yourself to something spiritually, I think, you know, it's like reopening a, a well of grace almost. And you've got to understand what the water you're drawing up is. Because, you know, there are things you could look back in history that you might not necessarily want to connect yourself to. There are things, you know, you're never going to find anything perfect. There will always be flaws. And actually, how men and women in their own generation kind of repented of that and dealt with some of those things, that's an important thing to be connected to. But I, I think, and sometimes people who criticise the OMS, and there are people who do that, one of the things they look back is they, they look back at some of the mistakes that were made and say, is this the kind of spiritual legacy you want to be connected to? And I look back at the same mistakes and say, well, at least I can see those mistakes, because if there was some kind of veil being drawn over them and these people were pretending to be perfect, that would raise alarm bells with me straight away. But more importantly, I see the journey of pain, of repentance, of restoration that they had to go on in their generation. I think actually there's things I can learn from that as well. And you know, the the aspect of how do you deal with sin, how do you deal with falling short of what God wants for our lives is not to cover over it and try and pretend that it never happened. It's actually to be joined to that journey of repentance and forgiveness and restoration, which is completely fundamental to the gospel after all. So, yeah, there's loads of practical things we can learn from the history. You know, I mean, a 100 years of prayer. I mean, a number of us involved in the OMS are involved in the 24-7 prayer movement. We're probably, you know, 20 years in. Well, okay, we've we've done a fifth of what they did. So maybe when we do the remaining four-fifths, we might get close to learning. <laughs> we can get excited about it then, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this was, in reality, the first modern mission movement at scale um, in, church in modern church history. So there's loads we can learn about mission. They were real pioneers of community. They planted these incredible missional communities that were radically countercultural in their day all over the world. They were really dealing with intercultural issues um, in a way that we're only just getting back to right now. And 
you know, that they had some challenges and they had some answers and they had some things that still seem relevant even today. So, yeah, there's loads we can learn practically. I am incredibly inspired by the story. And at the risk of being a book plug, you know, just read the just read the stories for read yourself. Read the story, everybody. Read it, yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so, say at the end of that that you're not encouraged and challenged and inspired and motivated by this stuff because it is amazing. And, and just recognise that, you know, there's that story of Elijah and Elisha, isn't there? And Elijah's coming to the end of his life. And Elisha's sort of request of Elijah and prayer to God almost is, you know, give me a double portion of what you had. I want more than just to learn from you. And I want more than just to be inspired by you. I want some of the same spirit that rested on you to rest on me. And actually, I dare for that to be my prayer too, that some of the same spirit of God that was resting on these people would rest on me. Amen. Amen. So let's let's just finish up our conversation today talking about the journey of, of the 24-7 movement. And when we talk about 24-7 and we talk about the order of the mustard seed, we actually say the order of the mustard seed is just part and parcel of the 24-7 movement. I mean, we've got the same threads of DNA all the way through us. And um, but I, I'd love to hear how you as part of the 24-7 movement and a bunch of friends, there was this fateful day, 2005, February 11th. Talk to us about that day and why you and a bunch of others in the 24-7 movement found yourself in that particular moment in our history. You know, I think I I probably first bumped into Pete Gregg in about 2002. Our, our journey into 24-7 started really early. Um, there was a guy called Tim Harold who was part of the church. We were both part of the same church then. And um, he went to an event called Cultural Shift in 1999, which was where uh, Pete Gregg and the guys from Revelation Church in Chichester first stood up and said, um, we did this thing. We prayed round the clock day and night, 24-7 for a week and a month. And it was amazing. And God turned up and the power of God was all over it. And we've been changed and our church has been changed. And you know, I th we think God's in this and maybe more people need to know about it. So we started thinking about that straight away. And in 2001, we did our first week of continuous prayer as as a church. And, you know, because that's now starting to become part of the DNA of contemporary church, it's like, oh, you did a 24-7 prayer. I mean, nobody had ever done anything like that. We used to do a thing called a half night of prayer, which was four hours. And we thought that was really radical. <laughs> and, you know, so that, that was a big thing. And then about 2002, Pete came to visit, and I got to meet him, and, and he was talking about how he he was really keen to, to dig into some of where this had come from. Because I, I think, you know, the, they'd felt the challenge to continuous prayer pretty much based on this, you know, quite superficial understanding of, oh, there was this group called the Moravians, and they were in Herrenhut in Germany, and they prayed for 100 years without stopping. And that's amazing. So let's try and pray for a whole week without stopping then, um, or a month without stopping. Um, but people are starting to feel and sense that there is probably a bit more to this Moravian connection than just 100 years of prayer, let's go. And specifically felt challenged about the order of the mustard seed, this, you know, covenant society almost that uh, Zinzendorf and some of his friends who became, went on to be the founders of that movement and the founders of the 100 years of prayer had, had made in, in their kind of teenage years that very much led them towards that. And I, I kind of got roped into doing a little bit of research for a book that Pete wrote called The Vision and the Vow, which really is the challenge that, you know, as often happens in God, you end up throwing the challenge out to others and God calls you to be an answer to your own challenge. Um, <laughs> th th that book was where the challenge got set out. To, we need to rediscover the power of 
covenant of vow of commitment in the contemporary church. And, you know, just think we, we live in an age that is commitment phobic in almost every way. People won't commit from anything to anything from a relationship to a mobile phone contract. And, um, you know, steps of commitment is some of the most radically counter countercultural things you can do right now. So Pete was feeling this challenge to write a book about commitment in the context of Christian faith and discipleship. What does it mean to live a life of formally committed discipleship, you know, in a covenant thing that is an, an, an expression and an interpretation of the new covenant, which is just the gospel, but re really expressed in that very specific way with specific promises reflecting that and kind of elaborating that in your own life. Um, so we explored that for a couple of years. Pete wrote the book called The Vision and the Vow, and we were just getting to the point of saying, we need to do something about this. We need to respond in ourselves to this. We'd also discovered in our research, and this was where the history bit really kicked in, that you know, in finding enough material to help Pete write one chapter of The Vision and the Vow on history, I'd found 10 times more. And the question was also being asked, okay, where can people go to find out about the Moravians, about Zinzendorf, about this history that we claim inspires us? And, you know, the last decent biography of Zinzendorf was quite academic, coming from a Moravian perspective and written in 1956. Um, it's a really good book. I still recommend it to people. It's by, it's just called Count Zinzendorf by John Weinlich. But um, nonetheless, it's, it's not an easy book to give to a teenager and say, get inspired by that. So, <laughs> yeah. We wanted something that would do exactly that. Um, and so writing The Lord of the Ring was what came out of that challenge. Can we make all of this history, all of these wonderful stories, accessible to a new generation? And that was kind of what we did. Um, but there was, even after doing that, and the, the two were happening roughly at the same time, there was still, we, we really feel called we've got to respond to this. You know, if this thing about vow and covenant and that being a foundation for our discipleship and our own personal walk of faith is serious, we've got to do something about it. And we looked at lots of ways of doing it. You know, there's this suggestion going around, well, let's let, let's fill a sports stadium and let's get 10,000 young people to take the mustard seed vow and that sort of thing. And that, you know, that's not a crazy idea. It wouldn't surprise me if a day came when that happens. You know, please, God, let that be the case. But um as we started thinking in those terms, it was more, you've got to engage with this in its own terms and in God's time and pace. And it is specifically about a mustard seed, about a little seed being sown into the ground and apparently disappearing and yet bursting forth and forming, you know, the, 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 the gospels translated as a great tree, which is slightly over noble for how mustard actually grows. It's more like a rampant thicket. But, um, you know, I, I don't mind the kingdom of God being like a rampant thicket in the earth if it, if it still gets to kind of spread and, and that sort of thing. And so I think we felt we, did, we didn't really have any right to stand up and tell others about this until we tried to live it out in our own lives. So initially it was only about 30-odd people, I think, who got together in a church called Holy Trinity Clapham in London in 2005 on February the 11th. And it was carefully chosen. That was the church where um, the, the prayer group and the encouragement group who really got behind William Wilberforce, who was the, the British politician who led the charge for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the very early 1800s. Um, you know, he, so that was the Clapham sect, right? Is that yeah, the, 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 they were called the Clapham sect, but they weren't a sect in the modern sense that we use the term. It was 
you know, basically a, 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 a prayer and encouragement group who really got spiritually behind what was being done politically and as influencers in the culture. And so, you know, we saw in them a group who had covenanted together in order to achieve a real kingdom aim and thought, you know, that, that's an example of the kind of group that we, we might aspire to be. So, that you know, go, going there and saying, yeah, although we're primarily talking about the OMS and Zinzendorf here, you know, in, in our own nation and in our own history, here's another group who kind of, yeah, they're inspirational in the same way. So let's go for that. And probably having chosen to take that vow together, which was just an incredibly exciting and incredibly scary moment. You know, it's like getting married. You already know you love that person. You already know you intend to spend the rest of their life, your life with them. And you already know that you've probably got friends around you who are basically doing all that stuff without ever making that formal step of commitment. So you know that making that vow in itself is not necessary to live that life or superficially doesn't appear to be necessary to make that life. If that's the case, then why does standing up and making those marriage vows feel like such a life-changing moment, such an incredibly big deal, when you've got people around you who are supposedly living the same without same life without making that step? And yet there is something about that process of covenant, which is just the highest level of commitment. It's the nature in which God chooses to reveal his commitment, his love, his promises towards us as human beings, as men and women. And when we step into that, that covenant relationship, the one that God himself has modeled to us in Christ, there is something about, you know, the promises I'm making are only the same promises I made when I became a Christian. So why does this feel such an enormous deal? But reality is it felt like an enormous deal and it was life changing and it has changed and shaped my life ever since. And that's just been the reality of it. And if you go right back to that question I asked my dad as a teenager, you know, okay, I've become a Christian. How do I make this real in my life? This has been one of the single biggest steps I've made to making my Christian faith real in my life. I've worn this ring every day ever since. I've probably looked at it every day ever since. And it has shaped my walk of discipleship in so many ways. And it, it was probably after 10 years of doing that kind of inside a submarine, you know, sort of doing it, um, you know, in quite a a not hugely public way. We would get together every year and renew our vows together, about half a dozen of us. We'd talk about how we were living out on our lives. We'd connect with other people who were trying to do the same thing. And, you know, it took a decade of that for us to really feel that we were ready almost to offer this to others as a walk of discipleship and to offer them the tools and the means to make that formal commitment for themselves. And obviously, you know, you, Jill, have been somebody who just has been completely instrumental in bringing the OMS as something that has a structure, has an organisation, has someone who takes that role of servant leadership, which is exactly what you do, and makes that available pe to people to be something they can be part of for themselves. So it's been a real privilege to be part of that journey from 2005 to, to where we are now in the OMS, it's felt like a very personal journey um, with a small community of friends alongside me. And now, praise God, it's becoming a much more community journey with a much bigger community of people who are all on that same walk alongside me, which is just fantastic to see. Yeah, it is amazing. It's so encouraging to see how it just continues to grow and grow. And, and even now with the Lectio 365 app, which of course is 
you know, it's three of the four contributors are, are members of the order and the app is structured around our three vows and our six practices. So, I mean, right now we've got 86,000 regular users. And so sort of this, this invitation to this 86,000. 86,000. Crazy. <laughs> it's totally crazy. You know, so so we're just, you know, we, we, we've got this opportunity, right, to give the gift that we've been given, you know, a way to practice the way of Jesus that's life-giving for us and for others. And so just, I just want to come back again to your book. I just, I'm so grateful, Phil. Your book has been such a gift to 24-7 movement, gift to the OMS, gift to me personally, gift to all of us. And and um, and so I'm just really grateful we've got it out there again and, and for this whole new generation of people looking in and wanting to see how this way of life, you know, is, is available and possible for them. So thanks for that. I'm wondering if you could pray for us as we finish up our time together. Yeah, sure. That'd be fantastic. Heavenly Father, we thank you that everything we've talked about today is your work it's not something we've had to work up for ourselves and we get the privilege to walk alongside you to be discipled by Jesus to learn from you to take on your yoke which is light and easy I thank you for the incredible example of the original OMS the people who were involved in all that you were doing in the 18th century I thank you for the inspiration that has been to me as I've tried to walk my own life of faith and discipleship. I thank you for the practical things that we can learn from that. I thank you for the, the fruit that came forth in their generation that is still relevant today and that we're still feeling the benefits of. And I, I thank you for that hope that we can be connected to that in more than just learning about it, but actually becoming part of the, the same go, same ongoing move of your spirit that that they were part of and that we can be part of too. I, I just pray for everybody who's listening today, Father, that you would inspire us together to follow you in this way, that you would disciple us and lead us to work out what it means to be true to you, to be kind to all those around us and to, to see your gospel message spread in our generation. and that you would just fill us with grace to be blessed and to be a blessing in every way, in our lives and in every place where those lives touch those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast. For more information about the Order, you can find us at orderofthemustardseed.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. May God grant us grace as we follow his invitations to be true and to be kind and to go. Go.